Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. This episode is brought to you by my brand new book, Mastering Adversity. Here's why you need this book, you guys. Not only is this going to be a, a book that's going to help you through your own personal development journey, this isn't just another book. Yes, I tie in my story and all of that and a lot of the, the, the philosophies and the modalities that I've learned. But what is really powerful about this book is it helps you, the reader, create awareness in your own life. I've created these archetypes that allow you to see yourself through the eyes that you're looking at your adversity with. Now, this book, Mastering Adversity, Unlock the Warrior Within and Turn Your Biggest Struggle into Your Greatest Gifts. I did that for a reason. The warrior is an archetype that I wanted to focus on because I feel we all lack it. We lack understanding. We lack what it all means. We see the shadow warrior in movies. We, we don't understand the depth of it. And this came to me, this inspiration of the warrior came to me through breathwork ceremony. So I wanted to bring this out. And in this book, the warrior archetype is like the most empowered human that you can be. It doesn't matter what sex you are, what gender you are, striving to really be that balanced observer of your life, coming from a place of love, coming from a place of empathy and compassion. Yet when it's time to attack, if you need to protect what matters to you, what you love, then you know how to do so in confidence. You know, I created these archetypes. The warrior is the ideal archetype. Then there's the victim. Then there's the distractor. And then there is the fixer. And these are different behaviors that show up in our lives. Then when we like, can identify where they are, we can look at the things that we're doing and then we can realize, oh, I'm doing those things. Okay, let's bring it back. And then we can do the things to get us out of that. And the goal here is to align yourself in your own life to the, be the most heart-centered human you can be. I know that term gets brought, it gets tossed around a lot. But that's the goal of this book. This goal is to really give you a tool to be able to change the perspective of how you look at the challenges in your life because a lot of it comes from the stories of the past. We see this life through the lens of past experiences. Now, depending on your story and the depth of it, you need to do a certain amount of healing. You need there's certain things that aren't just black and white. But the importance here and the number one step, I have the five A's in the book as well. The first one is, is awareness. When you're able to be aware, you're able to make changes. So this, this book will not only inspire you, educate you, but it'll also give you a roadmap to create your own awareness in your life. And I really believe it's going to change many people's lives. So go grab a copy, pre-copy. The book comes out in September. If you feel like waiting, you can do that, or you can get your hands on a pre-copy. We're trying to push the pre-sales as much as possible. So let's do it together. We really want to push this thing. And you guys, it's, it's honestly, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change the world. And I, yeah, I'm really proud of it. So I wouldn't say that in confidence in the past, a lot of things I did, 
but this book is really, really powerful. And you guys that are listening to the show are all part of it. So get a copy. The link is below in the show notes. Mastering Adversity comes out in September. Reserve your copy now. And enjoy this episode with Ryan J. Kemp. You know, one of the coolest things about having this show is to be able to have conversations about so many different things. And we can always tie it back to adversity of some sort, whether it be personal adversity, financial adversity, adversity in the world, spiritual adversity. There's always going to be things that get in our way and challenge us. So there's always discussions to be had, you know? And I love going into different areas of discussion about things that I'm not that educated about or learning about people's stories and just like being curious about why they chose to do the things that they do. And today's conversation was a really fun one. And I was just so fascinated by this guy's story because he's been all over the place and he's just had this like crazy journey and it was just fascinating to connect to them. So a little bit about him. We have Ryan J. Kemp joining us today. He is a teacher and a guide of the Regenerative Leadership Academy and speaker and founder of the Puero Regenerative Consultancy. He was born in Beverly, Massachusetts. He grew up in the towns of Salem and Andover. And Ryan authored several books such as The Age of Separation, A Holistic Framework for Reclaiming Our Power and Saving Our Planet. In today's episode, Ryan shares his journey on how he left playing left baseball to explore spirituality. He traveled to different countries for 11 years, and in that journey, he unlearned all the things that prevented him from truly expressing his true authentic self. He talked about how we need to move away from the I mentality and make conscious choices not to harm others on the planet by our own actions. Ryan also dives into the term regenerative leadership, which I don't, I didn't personally know outside of um, regenerative agriculture, but he ties that in together and what that means to have regenerative leadership. Things we taught, the topics that you'll learn about today, the transition from his professional baseball to studying Chinese philosophy, how he explored spirit, exploring spirituality through psychedelics and teachings of the yogi, the most useful piece of advice from an elder from the younger generation, understanding the word culture and its misinterpretations, and exploring, like I just mentioned, the, the, the term regenerative leadership, what that means, and also what does it mean to act from a place of heart versus the head. This was jam-packed, so I wanted to kind of like give you guys an outline of what we discuss. And to make sure, listen to this right to the end, because you're going to learn some stuff and you're going to have a different perspective by the end. All right. If you guys aren't subscribed to the podcast yet, make sure to go do so wherever you're listening to this, or if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to go follow us there. It's, I want to see the YouTube channel grow. We're still a very small YouTube channel right now, but you know, with your help, we can make that happen. Also, you guys, as always, we love seeing the reviews. If you get value from the show, Leave us a review on Apple if you can, or tag us on social media. It's always greatly appreciated. All right. Enjoy this conversation. Ryan J. Kemp. Here we go. Ryan, welcome to University of Adversity, brother. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. 
So looking at your story and, you know, looking at the different things that you've done in your life, I was really excited to get on this call because, you know, you've been on a big transformation and just seeing the different places of the world that you've ended up, some of the stuff that you have done and to take into where you are today. And you talk about regenerative, I can't even say that word property, regenerative leadership Mm. and what that means. I want to unpack all that. And but first, you know, where we had something in common here is like you were an athlete, you were a Div 1 baseball player, and I was a hockey player. And it's usually kind of where we learn a lot of things about ourselves, but then you kind of end up in this place. And I would love if you could walk us through that journey of like, talk us through your baseball days, what happened, and how did you end up? moving to Hong Kong and the rest of your life unfolding to where it is now. Sure. Yeah. A few of my best friends in university were also hockey players. So we definitely had a lot of raucous parties that were happening. (laughs) Northeastern where I went to school is a really good hockey school as well. So yeah, it was a lot of fun for sure. Living with, living with those dudes. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I started playing baseball when I was nine years old. And I was always really talented at it. I also played, I also played basketball. I also played football. So there was just kind of a knack for hand-eye coordination and athletic activity. But baseball was the one that I took to really quickly and continually practiced and, and got really, really talented at. And, and basically throughout high school. I actually got kicked off of my high school baseball team two out of four years. It just so happened that the head of this, the baseball team, the coach of the baseball team was the disciplinarian of the school. So I was also kind of like a little bit of a, a trickster in school. So ending up in detention, the guy knows about it. You're in the baseball team. He's, it, it was all intertwined in this kind of way. But basically my senior year of, of playing baseball in high school at Central Catholic in Massachusetts, I set a record for the mo- for the batting average hits runs and RBIs that my actual hitting coach's son had set like 20 years prior mm-hmm. and I ended up breaking his record and a bunch of coaches kind of swarmed in on me during this tournament which was the best of New England baseball players and I won best infielder only because I couldn't also win best hitter and a couple of the other ones but like I they I was slotted out to win like two or three of them because I just lit up that entire tournament basically. And a couple coaches were like, Hey, well, we see that you only played two years. Can you explain this? So I kind of was like almost a liability going into (laughs) a lot of this recruitment, but Northeastern, a division one team brought me in because they saw a lot of the potential and I fit in with the team that they, that they wanted to craft. And it definitely was a lot of training. I remember when I was very young, 13, 14, 15 years old, my dad had gotten an eye tracking chart with numbers on it. So I would have to find like one through 45 on these different things, like following my eyes, tracking them on this poster to train my eyes, to track the seams of the baseball as it come, as it's coming in or throwing corn kernels at me, like trying to actually hit them with like a broomstick. So there was running with parachutes in my backyard. There was just a lot of training going into it. And I really developed this 
skillfulness, but also now what I feel is more of a nostalgia for the actual scenery that I was playing in and going to baseball fields as the sun's setting and like fog and mist is rising off of the field and just this really beautiful cultivated feeling that came with it. But really what I, what I came down to after playing for a year and a half at Northeastern was that I realized I wasn't going to go professional. Yeah. And I wanted to enjoy my weekends. Yeah. <laughs> at university, like 6 a.m. lifts are not amicable to going out and having fun. Yeah. So basically there was this transition where this part of me that I had kind of pushed aside to actually play baseball, which was this yearning to travel and learn and do international business. I allowed that to reemerge once I came to the difficult recognition and conclusion that I wasn't going to continue to play baseball for my entire life, which also brought in some feelings of disappointment from my father, which I had to process, which also kind of brought in the shifting of my at that point friend group, mm. because a lot of the people from the athletic teams would kind of like huddle together and all hang out. And then when you're not a part of that, like all of a sudden you shift social scenes simultaneously. And so there was a lot of this sort of decomposition that was happening at that transitionary period, which really fed into more life for me to begin to blossom and bloom. And when I transitioned out of that, when I, when I was 19 years old, I immediately found a school in Hong Kong to travel to, to study Chinese philosophy and international finance, which was like a peripheral thing that I wanted to discover. But it was just like, oh, the credits swap, like Hong Kong, that's a place I've never even thought about living. Like, I'm just going to move there. There when I was 20 years old and my life's never been the same from that point. That kind of started the second chapter, if you will, of my life, which was the last 11 years traveling around the, around the world. That must have been quite the culture shock going to Hong. Well, Hong Kong itself probably isn't as crazy as it would be going to like, like China, China. Yeah. I ended up doing that too. But like, what was that like, man? Like, how did that shift? How did that start your spiritual journey? Cause, and why did you want to study Chinese philosophy? What was your call to that? That's crazy. Yeah. That's I mean, awesome. the funny part is it's like, I don't there wasn't even a reason. Yeah. Like a lot of, a lot of what I, what I see now when I go macroscopically into viewing my unique path, but also when I am able to view other people's paths and journeys, it's like a lot of these kind of moments occur and we don't necessarily know why it's almost like a choiceless choice. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, I just ended up there studying Chinese philosophy. And it's like, well, were you interested in it? And I was like, I, I mean, I'd heard of Confucius, I guess, you know, but like, I wasn't like, I wasn't like going to baseball practice and then in my room reading like Lao Tzu or something and then like organized my time to Hong Kong. It was, it was really just this synchronistic timing sort of thing that like the credits fit and I was leaving the baseball team and like, that's the one that I ended up going into, which was amazing because it kind of acted as this the beginning of the structural framework of what I were, was to eventually learn over the next 11 years. And then being able to cross culturally integrate all of these things that I've learned, like using that sort of framework was really, really cool. And something that I could have never imagined that I would do as I went as a 20 year old to this country. How old are you now? 31. 
Okay. Yeah. So you've yeah. traveled all over the place. Yeah, I literally traveled for the last 11 years of my life to about 50 countries, living, working, and studying from <laughs> traditional elders and doing grassroots development work, intertwining like Gandhian economics and living in like farming villages, trying to cut down food waste and doing renewable energy out in river delta regions of post-colonialist countries like Myanmar. I mean, it's, it's just been this entire, I just, it feels like a big wind and I was just like, I just got caught up in the wind and like really just learned and unlearned mostly for the last 11 years. That's been kind of the main thing that I've realized in one of my, if I can call him an idol, Albert Einstein, he says that education is what happens after you've forgotten everything that you've learned in school. Yeah. And I feel like the last 11 years of my life was truly educational because it was centered around unlearning all of the things that prevent me from truly expressing and being my authentic self without these constraints that the conditions have placed upon our minds that prevent us from doing that. Mm, so true, man. That unlearning is like, <laughs> that itself is such a task because we get programmed with all this nonsense that really doesn't serve us. It takes us off the path. Well, I mean, it does serve us, but it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't get us connected to like our truest potential most of the time. Right. Rip. And it's, yes. it's, it's trying to kind of untangle all of that. That doesn't really, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I've done the same thing, man. Mm. You know, and I feel like traveling is one of those things that you get such a good perspective, a different perspective than what you're used to. It's just like a whole paradigm shift. Yeah. For me, traveling, the way that I've begun to view it is I be, I've started to view conditions or programming, like you're saying, or patterning as these bars of a cage mm. and, or a prison. And traveling for me was this very acidic agent that started to dissolve the, the bars of my own identification, which was the prison that I was living in. So because, because traveling, like you get to like sit with a grandma cooking nopales on the side of the road in Mexico, or like you're out in the middle of a field in Africa with a farmer and he wants you to go help him do this. Or like you, you, you meet someone in India for three days and they invite you to their son's wedding. You know, it's like all these things like remind us of what we truly are, which is far beyond the concepts of what we think that we are. And, and be, because that's such an expansive quality of traveling, it begins to erode these constraints that we put on ourselves because you realize that, oh, I'm a human. Well, that's also a human. Like, look at the way that they live their life or look at the way that they think about a tree or like, look at the prayer that they put into the river. And like, all of a sudden these conditions that we thought represented humanity, real, we realize it only represents this small subsect of really what I've realized is a pseudo culture of an economic operating system. And as we like shatter those constraints, as they weaken through traveling, for example, as one of these acidic agents, then we're really moving into liberation as opposed to control. And, and that's really, that's really the, the focal point of a lot of the work that I do is when we're not controlling something, we're allowing it to operate in its true life form because control means con is 
against and troll comes from the Latin word rotulus, which means to roll or to flow. So control literally is the damming of the natural processes of water, for example, and life is literally existing because of water. So yeah, traveling really breaks down that barrier and allows life to express itself in the way that it knows how, because it's so intelligent. So, so how did you get into like spirituality? Like, how did that, how did you develop that? Is that something that you were seeking or is that something that you sort of learned or, cause people ask me that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I'm like, I don't even know. It wasn't my plan. I was like, it just had like, you just kind of, you learn, you grow and yeah, you sort of just fall into it. Yeah, I would, it's a good question. And when I'm feeling into it now, it was, there's a couple of things that kind of like nudged me pretty significantly towards this place that I didn't know what it was. One of them was actually, I mean, I've already started on this direction, so I'm going to share the story. But when I was 17, a couple of friends and I drove up to New Hampshire, which is the state just north of Massachusetts. And there was a substance there that was legal that was called salvia divinorum. And none of us really knew what it was. Like we're 17. We like heard that, like you smoke it, you hold in the smoke and then like, you make sure your friend has the pipe, you know? And like, basically it was this really intense psychedelic entheogenic substance that takes you off of like this three-dimensional plane and like pulls you out of it somehow for like five or six minutes and like throws us, throws you back into earth, like mm -hmm. It's really hard to explain, but if you look up salvia divinorum, it's known as the diviner's sage. And it's, it's a plant that's sometimes traditionally used in some cultures in, in, in Mexico or in Mexico that kind of rocked my entire world. And there was no one around me who knew anything about it. So like, there was no help with integration. There was no help with like supporting the place that I had just been that someone could say like, that is real. This substance does X, Y, Z. Like it brings you in here. Here's how you can now function in the world in this way. So it kind of thrust me into this, like a little bit of confusion towards like, where did I just go? Like what just happened here? And I didn't really touch another place like that until I went to Israel when I was 23 years old. And I went to Kotel, which is the Western or the Wailing Wall, but really it's the, it's the cross between some of the four of the worlds of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. It's an amazing place. I've, I've been there. It's really powerful. Yeah. And I went there on Taglit, which is the birthright trip. And when I arrived there, I just remember there was this Israeli man that kind of popped out from the side as this man was telling me about tefillin, which is this leather wrap that you wrap along your finger. And then there's a, a box here. I think it's called a phylactery. It's a box on your arm and a box over your third eye. So it's close to your heart and it's right over your third eye. And this Israeli man was like, it's like an antenna, you know, go up to the wall. So I was like, it's like an antenna. Okay. Well, like going up to the wall, had my written my prayers for my family and my friends and myself, and I put them in the wall. And I started chanting in Hebrew and something like came over my entire being. And I started like shaking, profusely sweating and like almost in like a daze, like uh, it was, I was like in a trance. And then when I left the wall, I was like in a daze 
And soon thereafter, when I returned back to Boston, like a couple of weeks later, I just committed to myself that like, whatever I was doing now, like I'm, I'm going to India. That's what I wanted to do. I was 23. So I applied to like my visa, my visa in India got denied. And I was like, huh, I didn't know they could just like deny Like, why would they deny my visa? That's kind of strange. So my next move somehow, and this is the sort of thing, like, we don't know why it works, how it works, but I started looking at uh, farms in Hawaii and I ended up finding a farm in Hawaii that was actually founded and run by a Sri Lankan Tamil man who was a sadhu, who was a yogi who walked from Sri Lanka to like Norway after his father was killed in the civil war in, in Sri Lanka between the Sinhalese and the Tamil people. And he was growing all Indian herbs and foods. There were curry leaf trees. There was like gotu kola. There was everything there. And I basically got thrust into little India in Hawaii studying with this 65 year old copper artist who was a yogi. So like when I was 23 looking for India, I got thrown into India in Hawaii with this yogi and he just like completely like flipped everything that I had been viewing. And this was really early on in my travels. And he really like deepened my understanding of what my tattoo means, which is yatra, which is the Sanskrit word for journey or pilgrimage. And what does that really mean? And where are we really journeying to and what's really happening? And he really like brought me into this, this way of being. And I met other people on that property, including an Afro-Cuban man who was my teacher and mentor for a while. And it just really like opened me up. So I'd say that that was how I got brought into spirituality, but now I just view spirituality as like a tomato. Yeah. Like for me, a tomato is one of the most spiritual things that we, that we have. It's like literally transmuted light, like brought into form with this delicious succulent taste that nourishes our being and allows us to continue to live. Mm. Like, so for me, spirituality now has taken, it's taken a different spin. I've kind of moved through this, what I view as like this, like kind of up and out ascension process that a lot of new age spirituality kind of functions within. It's like, it's almost like escapism or like a venture capital model, like three to five year, like exit strategy, you know, like, let me get out of this body. Like, let me get into these like etheric states of being. And really for me, spirituality is actually becoming more human because true Advaita Vedanta or non-duality in yogic studies is human and divine. It's not human or divine. So the more that we actually push away our, our humanity, we push away our divinity. So for me now, spirituality is merging very deeply within what it means to be human. And that encompasses for me, all the things that keep us alive or matakiyas and all our relations and all the things that we're in relationship with every single day. What's the best or most useful piece of advice you got from an elder that you came across that stands out? I mean, I'm sure you got a lot, but. That question just popped in and I felt like I had to ask that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Because our, our elders aren't celebrated enough in our, in our culture. It's like you're old, shoo them away. Yep. It's, it's not, it's really crazy how we're not sitting down and like wanting to learn about all of their stories and what they've been through. And they can teach us so much, you know? 
They've been through generations of of different, of change, yet we don't pay attention to them like we should. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of things that I want to share on that. That's a really beautiful entryway into a lot of deep stuff that I'm working on now. But I would say that something that continues to come up, and this is, this is recently, it's came up with two of my elders now, and I actually was coming to this realization on my own, but it, it, it didn't like, hadn't fully stuck. And when I say stuck, I mean, there's a difference for me between a conceptual knowing and understanding versus like a true knowing and being that shifts the entire way that you walk in your life. And I had understood it, but it hadn't, wasn't fully integrated. And this was, this was the, the teaching or the, or the lesson. It's not about you. Uh, and this has been really powerful for me because first of all, it allows us to not take everything so personally and so seriously, <laughs> which is really important because spirituality is also not super serious. Like, like life is serious enough. Like we don't have to take ourselves so seriously is what, what, what one of my friends always says in the Anipi in the sweat lodge. He's like, you don't got to make everything so serious, <laughs> you know, he's like, and, and if, it, and if you're feeling a little bit hotter, I'll throw some water on the stones and I'll cool it off for you, you know, but he's actually throwing water. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's like, there's something about that that like makes me, makes me feel good because it's not about me. So then it gets me into the, into the question, well, like, what is me? And it kind of starts this process that's known as jhana yoga or jnana yoga, which is the self-inquiry process about who we are. And, and one of, one of the things that I, that I see that is one of the, the most difficult, seemingly difficult aspects of the weird mentality, Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. One of the most difficult things to overcome seemingly is this steadfast belief in the I, which results in really the accumulation of wealth that creates juxtaposition and extraction from other people, the planet and other beings, the righteousness of belief that creates polarization and everything else that stems from this like supposed separate me from the world. Right. And it's like, when we realize that it's not about us, that we're, that we're a, we're a, a keystone in the proliferation and the creation of more life to continue ad infinitum on this planet for our future children and for people who will never even meet. I mean, going into the seventh generation understanding, right? It's like every single decision was planned on seven generations out and also backwards, right? With our ancestors. So we're honoring our ancestors and through our actions, we're honoring the seven generations out or more. And like, to do that, you can't make it about you, right? Because we are just a part of life and life, when we allow it to move through us, knows how to create more life. That's part of the entire thing about life. <laughs> like it's so intelligent because it continues to adapt and build ecosystems of biodiversity to that enable itself to self-organize and create more life forever. So that was a really deep lesson that I've begun to learn from my elders that I've been, that I've been able to integrate because it also, we also have the illusion that like, we're super 
like special if like we have this knowledge or wisdom or something and it's like like almost like we take like that's my wisdom you know it's like no it's like that's wisdom and wisdom comes from a place beyond who you think you are like in yoga they have something called the pancha koshas the five sheets and on the outer sheath is the body the inner the sheath below that or into that is the breath or the prana the sheath into that is the is the mind the sheath in into that is undiscriminatory wisdom meaning a source of intelligence without an eye function and the inner sheath from that is source or brahman so like to get to wisdom you can't be the holder of the wisdom you know you can say it and share it in your unique antenna and it's really important that we do that it can synthesize and share in the way that we are because this embraces our own value as human beings but simultaneously true wisdom is not discriminate upon an individual so I'll, I'll say about that much for now on that subject with the, what the elders were what one of the things that's been integrated recently has has there been a difference with these different countries and their like philosophy on life or is it kind of similar that's another good question because that's kind of where my journey has popped me out of is in this in this integrative framework where I've been able to like cross-reference me sitting in a monastery in Nepal and studying Mahayana Buddhism with learning about traditional Nahuatl language in Mexico or Mexico and seeing how yoga is actually the same as a lot of indigenous belief systems around interbeing and relationality. And it's like, whoa, like they're all, and this was actually kind of what spurned me into creating what I've created, which is actually called future elders. So it's kind of funny that you bring up the concept of elders because an elder is someone who has distilled life experience down to a tincture of medicine that can then assist those in need in the future, right? Like an elder is someone who, when you're sitting around them, you understand that they've been through so much in their life that like when you're going through it, just being near them is powerful enough for you to understand that like everything is going to be okay. Mm. And a lot of what I witness even growing up and with the story about the salvia, right? It's like, I didn't have anyone in my peripheral network who I could even go to, to, to ask like, what happened here? <laughs> like, where did I go? And there's a really big difference between age and elderhood. And I think that with our deathophobic culture, which you began to, to mention, I'll call it a pseudo culture because culture actually comes from the root word of cultivation. So culture comes from the earth. Culture doesn't come from economics, but with our deathophobic pseudo culture, like we push away aging, we push away death. We, we push away the act of killing animals to eat them. Like they're in factory farms, like out in the middle of nowhere where you never cross their path. And then simultaneously we worship death, like video games and movies and like the whole Californication of this entire process. So it's like, we're at this weird, we just have a really weird relationship with decomposition, sort of aging and then death. We really worship the birth and the life, the birth and the growth cycles of life. And, and in a biomimetic process or biomimetic meaning in the cycles of nature, there is 
different life. There are different parts of the life cycle and our pseudo culture focuses specifically on growth, right? It's, this is why personal growth and development is such a booming industry is because we associate growing or moving in this direction, kind of like the GDP graph. We associate growth as like the most important part of our journey. When actually without decomposition or death, birth and growth cannot even happen. Mm -hmm. But like, this is why sometimes I joke and I call myself the, the only personal degrowth coach in, <laughs> in the entire world is because like everyone is, is focusing on personal growth and development. No one's focusing on personal degrowth and decomposition. Mm. When like the, the accumulation of knowledge does not create wisdom. The accumulation of, of belief does not help you find your purpose. Like it all is moving in the opposite direction. And this is where, this is where unlearning for me is really powerful is it taps us back into the, the cyclicality of life in such a way that we truly can begin to understand what's happening from a view that isn't programmed in by an economic operating system. It's powerful, man. <laughs> I'm just contemplating, I'm just sitting here like, yeah, I mean, there's so much there, you know, our relationship to death is like, we're so afraid of it. And it's probably just because of religion, right? Religion has turned us into thinking we're going to, if we mess up, we're going to burn in lava. <laughs> yeah. Right. Is that, what do you think? What, where did all this come from? Where did all, why, why are we afraid of death? Is that why? Because the fear of the unknown of what's going to happen to us. So we've created this, this fear that, or is it the unknown? Like, what is that? Where did, where did that stem from? Cause it's not always, it's not like that in all cultures. Yeah. Well, or is I it? Say, I would say that like, when we're saying that we're afraid of death, who is afraid of death? I feel like, well, just society paints this picture that it's the end point and right. that's it. And we better not, it's, it's like a scary place to get to. Yeah. It's the, it, it's, it's the end point of the eye. Yeah. So why death wasn't so scary in other traditional cultures, because there wasn't the same level of I-ness. Right. Like what, there wasn't the same level of like, it is me separate from the world. It's, it's like, because o only something that's separate from life itself could die. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just life. Right. So like touching on, for, for example, with the, the, the name of the podcast is University of Adversity, right? It's like when a seed is growing through the soil and popping through the dirt to be able to receive the light and grow. It's like, do you think the seed views that as resistance or adversity, or is that just part of life? It's just part of life. And it's like, okay, well then death is part of the life cycle naturally. So like if we are life and traditional cultures, like the, to touch back on the word culture, like it literally comes from cultivation. So like cultures around the world come from the social geography and the way that the land has informed their language and the entire life way about how they function in harmony with that place. 
Mm. So like the culture itself is rooted in the life cycle of the place that the people live in, which includes death. So like, if that culture is a part of the life cycle, death is just a part of the life cycle. So like the physical form naturally goes through a specific elemental process of decomposition, just like anything does in the forest. But what part of me that thinks that I'm separate from that life, that's the only part that can die. And in, and in the, in the West, I'll say the West instead of bringing up the weird term again, but it seems like a lot of what we're doing is it's so me centric. It's so egocentric that it forgets about ecocentricity. And this is where part of the, some of the work that I do too, with organizations looking to do diversity, equity, and inclusion, I'm like, yes, it's really important to do diversity, equity, inclusion with humans, but like, what about diversity, equity, and inclusion with the environment? Like when's the last time you walked into a park and read a plaque written by the tree that's been there for 4,000 years? Like, why are we always writing things from a human centric point of view? When's the last time I created something for a hummingbird to live and thrive and love its life? It's like when I was up in Sitka, Alaska, I was sitting with the Herring Protectors, which is this beautiful Clinket indigenous organization that is supporting the, the proliferation of herring, which is one of their traditional foods and part of the core life way. And I was listening to one of the elders talk and she was sharing about how the herring they love when the herring is there, not only for them, but because the seals and the whales and the birds are happy. And it was like, wow, like, of course. Yeah. It's like, but like, cause it's not about us. It's not all about us. It's we we're included in it, but it can't only be focused on us. Mm. Like, because I mean, there's a quote, I think it's Mary Oliver. She's like, what a desolate place the world would be without a flower. Right. And it's like, we often neglect and forget how important beauty is or like hearing the, the call of a bird in the morning. Like, I don't want to live in a world where there's no birds, you know, I, yeah. I was in one of those worlds briefly. I was in Dubai and I was walking down the street trying to find the beach. I couldn't even find the beach because of all these hotel walls blocking it. I was about to like jump, the, <laughs> about yeah. to jump the hotel wall. And I heard a bird noise, like in the background. That's really good, by the way. Thanks. It's a, <laughs> it's a cardinal. Uh, I heard a bird noise and I was like, wow, bird. And I was like, wait a second. I'm in the middle of the desert in Dubai. And like, I looked up and there was a speaker in a tree playing bird noises. And I was like, whoa, like that is, <laughs> but like, you kind of, you, you kind of get what I'm touching into. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. There's a really important thing that we forget, like beauty and these other things that nature brings with us. Like that is as important as anything that we're looking to create and to create with that understanding of beauty and biodiversity, that is a really powerful way to, to create. Speak to us about what you're working on, like with regenerative leadership and what that means, because I think I was reading that you were talking about is like, you hear about it with agriculture, right? What does it mean other than that? Like, can you speak to us about all of that? Mm -hmm. Totally. So regenerative as a word, similar to recycle or resource or 
recreate, which we say as recreate or any of these re words, right? It's like, it's the cyclicality of an action. So regeneration is one, one simple way to put it that Paul Hawken, who is one of the proponents of this movement, he says it's, it's reinfusing life into the center of every action. So the way that I view it is eroding the constraints upon ourselves that prevent life from flowing through us in the optimal way that it knows how, which is naturally creative, which is naturally joyful and beautiful, which is naturally wise, which is naturally harmonious with the surrounding environment. So regeneration has now as a term has been used for agriculture, meaning that an easy way to to understand with agriculture would be using three different models. There's a degenerative model, which means that you're extracting more than you're putting back. There's a sustainable model, which means that you're extracting the same amount as you're putting back. And then a regenerative model would mean that you're reinfusing more life into the environment than what you're extracting. So if you do that with agriculture, for example, like you're going to enhance the soil, you're going to probably reintroduce prairieing and like local indigenous varietals into the, into the environment, you're going to cultivate the land in such a way that by the time that you're done with it, more life is there than was there before. So outside of agriculture is kind of where I begin to do this work with organizations is like, let's look at what the entire process of your business is. It, in some places it's called the stakeholder chain. So on one end will be the consumer and on the other end, let, let's say it's a t-shirt on one end is the consumer on the other end is like the soil and the people from where the cotton grew in wherever country you're getting that from. And all along that process, there are certain things that happen. There's packaging, there's shipping, and there is blah, 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 all the way back. So how do you focus on these points and infuse all of them with more life so that the entire process is creating more life rather than an extractive process, which is based on supply and demand, which literally, if you think about it, when the, when the supply is down to one, the demand will be the most high. So you can make the most money. So supply and demand is actually built upon the extinguishment of all natural resources for the highest value. So as the opposite of that, how do we actually begin to increase the life put into each of these processes to make sure that all future generations can be able to have what we've been blessed to have, which is like clean air or going and swimming in the ocean without like a wave of plastic coming over my head, which I've seen in Indonesia and I've seen in Thailand. It's like, you want to swim and you're about to get like hit by, hit by a tire, yeah. you know? In, in, even in Hawaii too, on the big island where I spend a lot of my time, like these pristine beaches, it's just microplastics. Like it's really sad, you know? And like, I don't want to, I don't want to bring my future daughter or son there and have them just try to be playing in the sand. And like, there's a dead bird full of plastic in its stomach and microplastics all over the sand, you know? It's like, yeah, it's not a world that I want to bring them up in. Like, how do we begin to change this? And so the, Re the Regenerative Leadership Academy is for people who are ready to implement this in their own daily lives, in their relationships, community, and organizations. Like how do you implement understandings of regeneration into your being integrated in such capacity that you have the skillfulness to create them in your life? 
and it goes into multiple different paths of yoga. There are four traditional paths of yoga, jhana, bhakti, karma, and raja. It goes into grief work. It goes into biomimicry. It goes into the economic value system. It goes into traditional indigenous cultures. And I bring in some people to share from these cultures. It goes into Ayurveda and the understanding of food. And then it goes into new models of creation, such as donut economics and localization which is a really cool organization called Local Futures who does this. And, and then it, so it basically brings people through this deconstructive journey to pop them back into the understandings that the natural world and cultures since time immemorial have lived within so that they can then learn to create in that way in their lives. And a, a spinoff of that is Future Elders which is this other unschool or deprogram. I don't, I don't really like to call them programs because I'm actually looking to deprogram more than I am program people, but it basically brings people into learning the skill sets that will allow them to be the, these lifeboats and these people with truly embodied and integrated value systems that can be there to help as this world continually changes. Because an elder is able to, has cultivated resilience and adaptation and wisdom to such a degree that they're able to navigate the shifting tides of life. And a lot of people, including myself growing up, wish that we had elders. Like I wish that I had someone that I could go and talk to, 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 to tell me something, you know, just like if I'm playing baseball and I really want to play piano, like maybe the elder was like, Hey, you're really good at piano. Like, maybe you want to try that. It's like just s someone to see in such a way with the wisdom to help guide into authenticity and create and creativity and joy. And this is, it, it's literally a skill set. It's not a concept. It's an experiential skill set because it's like, I can read all, all I want about how to grow corn. And then when I go to try to grow corn, it's going to be a little different than the book, you know? So future elders provides people with this experiential skill set of how to step into that elderhood now to be able to guide those in their life who are going, including themselves, who are going to move through this sort of next stage of, of, of human consciousness, which is being pressurized with global warming and being pressurized with pandemics and being pressurized with logistics and supply chain issues and being pressurized with polarization. And like, there's a lot of pressure that's coming into, into the world. And how do we navigate that with grace? And that's what an elder does. And that's what I've been blessed to learn. And I, I kind of carry this bundle now of wisdom that, that I can share and also lead, lead people back to these other people who have taught me, you know, because it's not about me. So that's really what some of the work that I do is my consulting company is called Pueo, which is the Hawaiian word for owl. It represents the Amakua, the ancestral wisdom. The owl is also a, a bird that can see almost 360 degrees around. So it represents holistic ways of viewing problems and applying solutions. And it's also a diurnal and a nocturnal bird. So it navigates the daytime and the nighttime. It navigates the light and the dark. So that's the consulting company. And then I have two different things that I offer people. One more targeted towards people in businesses, regenerative leadership, and then one that's different than that, which is called future elders, which is the skills. And then I like to write and play guitar and do a bunch of other stuff too.
Would you say the unlearning is really connecting to your intuition at a deep level? I like that. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good way to say it because in, because intuition is, is not bridled by logic. And when in an, in an, in a hyper intellectualized society, we, we out reason ourselves out of things that we know to be true. That's the truth. So true. And I mean, we even out, we even out reason ourselves from listening to our intuition is something that I noticed within myself. And I've been cultivating this for, for many years now, but it's like when, when, when that voice, whether I be, I hear it or I feel something, the mind is normally like, blah, 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 blah. And then I'm like, oh, hi, you know? And then I like, but the mind will tell me why I shouldn't follow that. Yeah. And then we have to recognize that as the mind and not as the same source of what's pulling us into that action. So there becomes this sort of natural place of differentiation or discernment rather, where we can sit and witness and feel which things are coming from where, and then act upon that place. Hmm. And kind of to add to that one, one thing that has been really helpful for me is that whenever I'm feeling confused, I know that that's coming from my mind because my heart can never be confused. Only my mind can be confused. So when I find myself like being a little bit lost, I realize that I must be creating this sort of smoke and mirrors thing here. I just remember to tap back into a place where I am beyond confusion because like a tree is not confused about how to be a tree, you know, it, it, it doesn't think that it's a bird like, and this entire thing that we try to be something that we're not, it's like, that's where the mind comes in with this comparative thief of joy. As the quote goes, it's like, this is where finding the heart is really important is because when you act from a place of the heart, you're acting in a place of everything, which is more than you, which is more than your identity as Ryan or, you know, so yeah. Powerful stuff. Where can everybody I know you kind of described it. Where's the best place to learn more about you and to dive into your work? There is an Instagram account that I utilize at Ryan J underscore Kemp, K-E-M-P. Pueo Consulting is my website. And then the Future Elders website should be launched in the next maybe like month. Love it. But right now there's, there's the Regenerative Leadership Academy, which is accessible through Pueo and through my own personal website. But Future Elders is something that I've been, I've been sharing and, and teaching, but I hadn't formalized it into like a, its own website and stuff like that. And then I have a couple different books on Amazon. I have a poetry, I have a poetry book that I wrote called Returning Home. I wrote two children's books and there's a full length book called the age of separation, how to reclaim our power and save our planet. But really what that's about is navigating duality or navigating the, the illusion of polarization and separation or a word that people use now is binary, navigating the binary to find the place in between that is known as the Tao or the middle way, right? It's like between the yin and the yang, there's the line in between and that's the middle way. That's the Tao. So. That book is about cross-culturally how to begin to navigate that space 
in Buddhism, they call it equanimity. There's a lot of different ways that people call it, but it's the place of balance. It's the place of equilibrium and it's the place of effortlessness where it's not a burden to have to do things in our life. It's a, it's a blessing. And we welcome that with open arms and open hearts. And we realize our privilege to be able to breathe breath and connect with beautiful human family like the silver calls and, and to be able to pray and to drink water and hang out and play music. And, you know, it's like, it's all really a blessing. Well, it is. And sometimes we complain about it, you know? Yeah. Dude, thank you so much, man. Yeah. The fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. And this future elders thing, I really like it, man. It's awesome. Thank you. Something the world needs. So thanks very much. I appreciate that. Thanks everybody. So what a conversation thing. Key takeaways here, regenerative leadership, such an interesting concept. And it's, um, yeah, it's really, it's really powerful to really shift how the way we think about this, the world that we're living in, you know, and I love this quote that we pulled out from this interview as well from Ryan. A key step in regeneration is decomposition. In order for new life to thrive, parts of the ecosystem that have no value to the harmony of the network must be transmuted into food for new life. Without death, there is no life. What a beautiful quote. Ponder on that for a second. You know, like what a, yeah, it's, I don't know. I just enjoyed this so much. And you look into his story and just how many places he's been and really powerful. So go check him out. All his information is in the show notes, you guys. And if you aren't subscribed to this podcast yet, make sure to do so wherever you're listening. Or if you guys want to support us on YouTube, we're there as well. And as always, I love you guys. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. If you would like to support University of Adversity podcast, you can do so by purchasing my pre-sale of my book, Mastering Adversity. Unlock the warrior within and turn your biggest struggle into your greatest gifts. It's out in September, but we really want to amp up the pre-sales and I can't do it alone. So if you want to support the show, you want to support the work that we do here at University of Adversity, that's how to do so. All the information is below and I appreciate all of you. If you want more videos just like this, make sure to subscribe to this channel and hit the bell to stay notified so you don't miss any. Thank you so much.